The story of the paper is that it's a commissioned piece for a handbook on the anthropology of religion. And uh, so I was asked, slightly to my surprise, to do the chapter on the anthropology of Hinduism. And um, the editors of the said volume are two of the kind of leading anthropologists in the so-called new, so-called anthropology of Christianity. That is to say, Joel Robbins and Simon Coleman. And um, so, inevitably, one sort of asks oneself, can, is, what is it? What is it to do the anthropology of Hinduism? Can it be done? Uh, and anyway, what is this thing called Hinduism? So that's uh, one of the many questions that I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with. Um, I, uh, my colleague, um, Peter Santo, reminded me of the goodness gracious me sketch. Uh, so I couldn't resist closing that. The young the sort of son comes to his father and says, Dad, you know, what is this Hinduism, this deep, rich religion that we have? Can you please explain to me, Dad? He says, well, son, there's lots of gods, so many gods, so many texts, so many scriptures, but it all comes down to one fundamental principle. No beef. (laughs) So uh, does it all come down to one fundamental principle? That's the question we're going to be um, struggling with. So uh, I will, have, unfortunately, have to read some of this, and I'm also obviously going to skip some bits because it's going to be uh, too long to, for, for even to get into an hour. So Hinduism is a highly contested and protein object whose very existence has been denied by many scholars. And so inevitably, you know, in, one, in one book chapter, you're not going to be able to cover everything. Google Scholar generates 131,000 results for Hinduism, Hinduism is supposed to have 330 million gods, so clearly something has to be left out here. And um, so one of the one of the one of the things I'm hoping is, you know, clearly I'm going to have to be selective, and this is probably an exercise in, you know, uh, insulting and alienating a large number of people by not mentioning them. Um, so I'm 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 just going to have to calibrate the different levels of outrage about what's been left out and what's been put in, and and see whether I've got it right. Um, but what I hope will emerge is that Hinduism is. Uh, both good to think with and good to study, and that it challenges some of the more unreflective Eurocentric common sense presuppositions that social science has when it sets out to study the world. There's also going to be a fair bit about Dumont in what follows. That clearly marks me as old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy in the world of South Asian studies. Um, My response is as follows. Dumont wrote in his manifesto in the first contribution to Indian sociology, that the first condition for a sound development of a sociology of India is found in the establishment of the proper relation between it and classical Indology. And now we can paraphrase Dumont himself and say that the first desideratum for an up-to-date anthropology of South Asia is to get a proper understanding of the relationship between ourselves and the Dumontian heritage. That is to say, a respectful use and a recognition where Dumont got it right for example, on the centrality of purity, the lack of individualism in South Asian society, and a clear recognition where he did not. For example, on the so-called secularisation of the king, or a single scale of hierarchy, or lack of attention to kind of radical historical shifts. Okay, so I'm going to move, this is the first section, is called, What is this thing called religion that Hinduism fails to qualify? Hinduism appears to many as a religion that is not a religion. It confounds common Western Abrahamic expectations about what a religion should look like. It has no single God, no single Holy Scripture, no single founder, no single message or creed, no shared moral code, no single origin point, and no single distinctive symbol or practice. And in fact, defining Hinduism negatively seems to be a rather common way to proceed. Hinduism's most basic practice, puja or worship, is found all over Asia, and its holy syllable, Om, is shared with other South Asian religions, Mahayana Buddhism, Sikhism. A common South Asian simile likens Hinduism to a banyan tree whose spreading branches put down roots so that eventually no one can tell where the original trunk is. More pejoratively, European authors have compared it to a sponge that absorbs whatever foreign faith enters South Asian soil. So one response is simply to deny that Hinduism is a religion. So, all right, well, you lost the, the bottom line is just simply the uh, attribution. So, a chap called Bala Gangadara, who's a uh, professor of Hindu studies in, I've forgotten which university, in Belgium. 
So there are three problems with the claim that Hinduism is not a religion. The first is the assumption that we know what religion is or must be. The second is that, on the whole, the, the, the historical record shows that, by the, at least by the time of the Muslims, in arrival in the subcontinent, as I say, a thousand years ago, contrary to the many authors who've claimed that Hinduism was invented in the 19th century, Hindus did have a sense of themselves as a coherent religious tradition. And in fact, other authors, for example, um, Gavin Flood and Wendy Doniger, claim with some um, justification, I believe, that a sort of sense of... Obviously, it wasn't called the word Hindu wasn't used, but nonetheless, people had a sense of a coherent tradition in opposition to... Buddhism, Jainism, and so on, uh, a thousand years before that. And the the third uh, reason, which of course could be made compatible with the uh, invention of Hinduism uh, idea, is that the history of Hinduism in modern times is very largely the history of the many Hindu activists who have sought to reform Hinduism so that it does indeed conform to the modernist idea of a religion. So I'm going to return to that later. So let's start with the first of these points about the assumption about uh, what a religion is. Uh, So a lot of ink has been spilt over defining religion, and most anthropologists today would probably agree to a kind of polythetic uh, definition, much as they would with many other uh, of of the kind of things that they try to describe, whether that be kinship, marriage, society, or whatever. Durkheim already knew that that belief in God or gods could not be a valid touchstone of religion, and he used the example of Buddhism to knock out that approach. Uh, And a well-known case demonstrating the inadequacy of God-focused definitions of religion is Theravada Buddhism. Richard Gombrich wrote a classic study uh, of, of Buddhism in the central highlands of Ceylon, or as it was then, Sri Lanka, in the 1960s. An old monk told him, God's have nothing to do with religion. Now, in English, that sounds paradoxical, like a deliberate attempt to somehow upend conventional wisdom. But in Sinhalese, by contrast, that sentence is utter banality. Um, Devata, gods or spirits, have nothing to do with agama. That's to say religion or the path to salvation. That's kind of just blindingly obvious. Any fool knows that in a Theravada context. So all religions are diverse in their localised and vernacular practice, but it's probably true to say that Hinduism is more so than most. Hindus do not share this Theravada Buddhist separation of gods from salvific practice, but they do share a a fundamental distinction between the mundane, or the everyday, what they call the laukic, and the supramundane, or the lokotara, that's what's beyond the world. And the various South Asian traditions have evolved a vocabulary to talk about uh, the different kinds of activity that are covered by our capsule English word religion. So on the one hand, there are uh, activities which are a kind of a path out of the travails of this world. Various words like panta, marga, yana. On the other hand, are kind of opposed, sometimes including that, and sometimes as the paradigmatic case of that is the, is the path, but other times opposed to it, is dharma, a polysemous term that can mean anything to cover uh, covering from everything from ritual to duty to holy practice and so on, and merit, even religious merit. So summarising very briefly and simply, and, um, you've got three basic, three types, three things covered by religion. On the one hand, you've got soteriology or salvation religion, as opposed to the religion of the world or activities undertaken in the world. And then activities within the world subdivide between things that have to be done because it's the right time of your life cycle or the right time of year, and on the other hand, things which are what I call R3, which are I, I call instrumental religion, that is to say, things that are done uh, in order to make something happen, paradigmatically things which are done in order to uh, recover from illness, uh, to make rainfall, or to make sure you get a government job. And if you want a kind of quick memnonic for those three, R1 uh, was theorised by Max Weber. R2, the kind of life cycle calendrical stuff, was best theorised by Durkheim. And uh, R3 was best theorised by Fraser. So that's how to, uh, to remember the types. The types are clearly 
you know, I'm using, I'm, I'm, if you like, systematizing South Asian distinctions. And uh, depending on context, these different types of activities may or may not be considered part of the same ideological or uh, ritual system. And that, a classic study is Tambaya's work on Buddhism and the spirit cults in northeast Thailand. And this illustration from page 267 of that work is not only a classic uh, illustration of structuralist method, but it's also a classic illustration of how Theravada Buddhism coexists in a structured hierarchy with, in this case, three other ritual systems, each with their own specialists, each with their own ritual language, each with their own set of rituals, each with their own set of problems to which they are addressed. And now, Theravada is admittedly ex ex extreme, but it's also extremely instructive case um, where the separation of what I'm calling R1 from the other types is maintained, or it's, it's more, it's, it's kind of sharper than in any other uh, example. One of the consequences of that is that, I mean, and of course, anthropologists have loved to undermine these kind of schemas, so they love to show how Buddhist monks are in fact deeply involved in magic and uh, instrumental activities. But the point is, according to their own uh, ideology, they're not supposed to. Uh, and of course, so this is why it's only in the modern period that a Theravada Buddhist wedding ceremony has been invented. Now, there was never a need for one before because marriages were not supposed, they were, part, they were nothing to do with religion as defined in Theravada Buddhism. Now, among those people we conventionally call Hindus, and who mostly call themselves Hindus in decennial censuses, these three types of religion are all found. But very often they're not necessarily, or certainly they're not, they're very often they're not part of a single uh, uh, thing, a single religious system. They may uh, have resort to different systems, as in the Theravada case. Once we see that religion is not necessarily a single thing, and grasp that it doesn't have to conform to the Abrahamic model, the problem of whether Hinduism is a, one of these things um, becomes rather easier to tackle. And that means we don't have to say Hinduism is not a religion. We don't have to say that it's a philosophy, it's a way of life, it's a tradition. We can go on talking about religions as long as we don't have this um, Procrustean bed of the Abrahamic de uh, 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 definition to force it into. Okay, so the next section is called the polytropy of most ordinary practice. And polytropy is a highly felicitous term that was come up with by Michael Carithers, uh, writing about Maharashtra, but it applies very widely across Asia. And the idea is that there are, uh, kind of the typical Asian in, in the street is confronted by a large number of spiritual powers, and they're not really bothered by... Uh, who the, which, which particular uh, religious label is applied to the specialist who's in charge of that particular religious power. They will go, they don't, they don't want, they're not, most ordinary people are not in the business most of the time of going around sticking labels on things, saying this is Hindu, this is Jain, this is Buddhist, this is Muslim, and so on. And very much the same uh, argument has been made for China by Adam Chow in a series of publications. And therefore, for ordinary people, the kind of the, there is much, much less of a need to be kind of consistent in terms of certainly for specialists, religious specialists, what Weber called virtuosi, the uh, systematicity is an important consideration. But for the vast majority of people, it is not. And there's an exact parallel in the medical field. This is what Alan Beals has to say about um, uh, humours, the theory of humours in. Uh, in, in, South, in the village that he worked in in South India. Um, and um, the point about the, the, this kind of medical pluralism, what medical anthropologists call pluralism, people's willingness to subscribe to multiple uh, different types of system at once or in sequence, is that basically people just want to get better. And that's an exact parallel to Carruthers' religious polytropy. So especially in South Asia... People are used to living with many different types of people, and um, or jat or jati as it's called, and uh, they are also used to living with extreme religious difference. In fact, in certain circumstances, it may actually be a positive advantage 
to belong to an other or conventionally despised or stigmatized background. For example, in, across North India, Muslim healers or hakim flourish uh, as specialists in sexual dysfunction, disease, and um, spirit attack. So it's certainly the case that there are the kind of Hindu-Muslim divide is much sharper than other divides. Um, but it, North India is also the region where you have this thing which is known as the Ganga Jamuna Tazib, or the, the culture of the rivers Ganga and Jamuna, which is a kind of shared Hindu-Muslim uh, culture, and in spite of everything, in spite of the communal riots. Um, and this is very well described in Peter Gottschalk's uh, ethnography uh, beyond Hindu and Muslim, which is about a, a, a cluster of villages in western Bihar, where the local Muslims and the local Hindus, the sort of dominant groups of both, remember that they are related to each other. They're, kind of, they're descended from the same man, so they are relatives. So in spite of all the Hindu-Muslim tensions which existed then, and of course a fortiori now, nonetheless people have contacts and people have ways in which they can reach out across and say the religious difference really isn't a difference that matters. Okay, my next section is called Caste and Hierarchy, Society as a God. So clearly in the history of anthropological engagement with South Asia, Lou Dumont's oeuvre, in particular his magnum opus Homo Hierarchicus, looms large. In the standard 1980 edition of that book, his bold and seminal essay on the world renouncer is included as an appendix. That essay on the world renouncer shows how the great renouncer religions, Buddhism, Jainism, and also sects within Hinduism, Lingayatism, Shaivism, are what generates new ideas in, in, that, in the Hindu context, including the idea of the individual, and Hinduism develops through what he calls a conversation between the man in the world and the renouncer. Now, that insight however much it needs to be nuanced by subsequent scholarship, still stands as a brilliant summary of the complex history of religious developments in South Asia. It's a double irony, however, that in the rest of that, of the magnum opus, Homo Hierarchicus, A, fails to adopt the dynamic picture of South Asian history that the essay, the renunciation essay implies, and B, completely ignores, as several people have pointed out, the ritual and God. Okay, so Hinduism is kind of almost conspicuous by its absence, in a way, from Homo Hierarchicus. It's what Fuller and Spencer call the distinctively unreligious concept of religion. Instead, Dumont's analysis focuses on caste interaction and its logic, as illustrated by a single multicaste village in Madhya Pradesh, which, he, he, uh, which had been studied by Adrian Mayer. The book's cursory, almost dismissive consideration of historical change, whether the change in the long durée or whether we're talking about change subsequent upon colonialism and urbanization, simply added, uh, provided fuel for his critics. They accused Dumont of being overly static, structuralist, and deductive interpretation of South Asian uh, society, in which crucial developments had happened 2,500 years ago and nothing important had happened thereafter. These, of course, are standard, standard criticisms which kind of rehearsed in hundreds of undergraduate essays now. Um, even more importantly for present purposes, Dumont nowhere engages with the, um, uh, the, the fascinating question which he had addressed in some of his earlier essays on the relationship between social hierarchy, that is the hierarchy of humans and caste, and the hierarchy of the gods, the pantheon. So the question is, to what extent does the pantheon simply reflect and reinforce social hierarchy. This is one of the key issues, I think, in the study of anthropological study of Hinduism. And in context after context across South Asia, I think it's clear that there is a connection or homology, a correlation, to put it no stronger than that, between the two hierarchies. Higher gods are vegetarian, are represented in iconic form, have Brahman or other high-caste priests... Lowest, the lowest gods or spirits are formless except impure offerings, either meat or animal entrails or broken rice, and have low-caste priests or officiants. In between, there are blood-drinking goddesses and fierce forms of higher gods, e.g. Bhairava as a fierce form of Shiva. How these different levels of the pantheon fit together and the extent to which it's a straightforward structured hierarchy have been matters of debate, of course, and there are regional differences in the way that the pantheon operates. Some gods who would never be offered blood sacrifice in India, for example, the elephant-headed god Ganesh, 
do receive it in the hills in Nepal. Now, initial observers were tempted to explain this Hindu pantheon as a simple projection in a kind of rather simplistic Durkheimian view of the social hierarchy. Others have since argued that, no, once you actually look in detail at the way the logic of the divine hierarchy works, it's not as simple as that. Gods have to be treated as if they are pure, but unlike humans, gods cannot be rendered impure. Okay, So you can't, you can't actually defile a god. You can just anger them by behaving in an insufficiently respectful way. Um, and furthermore, um, the way that the Brahmins represent the highest levels of the divine hierarchy, they are represented as kind of independent, having no necessary relationship with the lower meat-eating or sacrifice-accepting gods. So Chris Fuller concludes, the South Indian Hindu pantheon is not a simple reflection, a simple religious reflection of caste society. And yet, and yet, once one has accepted that point, that it is not a simple reflection, the, stru- the, the similarity of the, uh, and the, 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 between the two, the homology between them, it remains very striking. And it must be the case that the two are intimately linked. As Fuller himself shows, there is an exact homology between the Brahmins' claim to an absolutely pure superiority, supposedly independent of any ties to their inferiors, and, in the religious sphere, the idea that somehow the high gods are intrinsically pure and don't depend on the lower ones. That homology, that homology between the two spheres, the social sphere, if you like, and the religious sphere is absolutely explicit in the traditional doctrine that views Brahmins as gods on earth and excludes them, and only them, from, the, uh, from capital punishment. And the tight connection between the two hierarchies is also, I think, acknowledged by the struggles in modern times by Dalits and other low castes to develop their own religious symbols uh, independent of Brahmins. In the traditional... Uh, Hindu conception is not only the pantheon that legitimates social hierarchy, the social hierarchy itself is seen as divinely sanctioned and sacred. And it's the duty of the king to preserve that social order, which is why I think Dumont didn't feel it necessary to deal with the gods and you know, rituals for the gods in Homo Hierarchicus. The classic representation of this is the famous Rig Vedic hymn, <coughs> the Purusha Sukta, which you've got up here, or the Hymn of Man in which that cosmic man, the original man, out of which the world and sacrifice uh, comes, is itself divided by caste. And Brian Smith has shown just how pervasive this classification system was for the entire cosmology of Vedic Hinduism. Okay, so the next, the next section is called Gifts and Persons. So it's long been observed that South Asians, perhaps all Asians, have a radically more relational ideology of personhood than the West, whatever that is, though the terms of the contrast have come in for multiple critiques over the years. And here, too, Dumont made a foundational contribution with this already mentioned essay on world renunciation. The key point was that in India, that's to say South Asia, people define themselves in relation to significant others, both within the household and collectively as castes. It's a world of relations. Only by renouncing one's status as a householder and, theoretically, cutting all one's ties, dying to the world, performing one's own funeral rites, does one become an individual, i.e. a monad, independent, self-existent. As we have just seen, this self-reliant, self-sustaining individuality of the ascetic renouncer is also the model of the ideal Brahman, however much the everyday life of existing Brahmins, actually existing Brahmins, was mired in relationality. Coming at Indian realities from a very different angle from Dumont's French structuralism, Chicago's McKim Marriott, in a series of papers, advocated a transactionalist and ethnosociological approach, i.e. one that was supposedly using Hindus' own categories to understand their sense of personhood and interrelations with each other. Marriott and his followers emphasized flows of bodily substance between people, flows that occur and reoccur with every interaction. This view of South Asians as individuals rather than individuals was to have far-reaching anthropological influence, largely mediated by Marilyn Strathern, whose work in time would come to then influence the next generation of South Asian ethnographers. For a time in the 1980s, the world of South Asian studies seemed to be caught up in a firefight between the advocates of Chicago and the advocates of Dumont. However, in fact, 
As Parry has remarked, far from being diametrically opposed and incompatible, as their partisans at the time supposed, for the working ethnographer of South Asia, the two approaches actually imply each other. The static ideology of purity and caste, analysed by Dumont, is the counterpart to and necessary defence against the radical instability of personal substance of the ethno-sociologists. The reason why people are so concerned to police the boundaries between different types of people is precisely because they fear the identity-threatening contamination that would follow from free and easy interaction. The ethno-methodological approach was to prove fruitful in a number of areas. Val Daniel, for instance, demonstrated how one's personal essence, as I'm thinking of his book, um, Fluid Signs, being a person the Tamil way, um, uh, he, he demonstrated how one's personal essence was shaped and moulded not just by one's inherited substance, but also by the earth, the food, and the interactions with where one is brought up. Another area where the, the ethnological approach was very fruitful was in the analysis of the so-called Judgmani system. Now, the Judgmani system, for those who haven't written an essay on it yet, um, is the religiously sanctified way of sharing labour um, within the caste system. And it was initially described somewhat romantically by William Weiser back in the 1930s, as being somewhat like the old feudal system, yet unlike it, since everyone, so wise a thought, was both master and servant, depending on role. The key point about these judgmani relationships were that they were close and lifelong relationships between households, as, for example, between their family and their priest, and this was opposed to market relations in at least six ways, which I've put up on the slide. And the religious nature of that relationship, that, long, that, that long-standing and ongoing inherited relationship between the household and their client, that uh, religious nature was demonstrated by the very terminology used. So the term judgman, the word for the patron, comes from the Sanskrit yajamana, he who orders a ritual sacrifice, as opposed to the specialists who actually do the sacrifice on his behalf. So following Weiser, many ethnographers refers to this system and Dumont devoted an entire chapter to it in Homo Hierarchicus. But after Dumont, the discussion seemed to be petering out. The Jajmani system had become a stereotype of te textbooks of sociology. I believe that there's even a section on it in... Uh, um, 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 what's his name? Uh, Giddens, Tony Giddens' enormous textbook of sociology. You know, so it's re it was reduced to this caricature of itself... And I think, I think main, probably people, you know, anthropologists, they got bored with endless essays about the Jajmani system, and they began to um, harbour doubts about whether it really existed uh, and whether it was as pervasive or as found foundational as had been thought. And Chris Fuller wrote an essay, basically deconstructing the whole idea and saying um, that it didn't, didn't really exist, and it didn't, not in the South, which is a typical South Asianist's uh, response to any generalisation that's ever made. They didn't work in the South. Um, uh, and at the very moment when Chris Fuller kind of exploded this little bomblet underneath the whole idea of the judge money system, at that very moment, the Gloria Goodwin Raheja published The Poison in the Gift, which uh, revived the entire thing and showed that it actually was a very powerful idea um, that... Um, uh, it was a brilliant ethnography because it was incredibly detailed, um, you know, unbelievably detailed uh, analysis of specific rituals and of the terminology used in those rituals, very careful description of all the different types of prestation and all the different languages it was used for them. And to cut a long story short, I've sort of summarised it uh, for you in this diagram. Um, what she shows is that all the different types of prestation in this village fall into one of two types. There's lots of different vocabulary, but the, the key, the paradigmatic G, what I'm calling G-type, is dan, which of course dan in Sanskrit, North Indian word dan, directly etymologically related to donation in English, um, that what we might call uh, gifts, religiously sanctioned gifts. And on the other hand, what is uh, known locally as paslana, which is a kind of payment in, in kind. So you've got these E-type, what I'm calling E-type and G-type prestations, and they're contrasted to each other. People very clearly understand the difference uh, between them. 
And so uh, the G-type, the patron, has the right to give. The, the client has the duty to accept it and may not refuse to accept it as long as they're in that relationship. And uh, whereas Paslana is seen as a kind of payment. It may be payment in kind, but nonetheless it's a kind of payment. So the clients are very happy to take Faslana. They want to take Faslana. They're not, they're rather <coughs> reluctant to accept the G-type, uh, but they are obliged to do so. And why? Because along with the G-type comes this, uh, what she calls inauspiciousness, this kind of, it's not exactly evil, but it's bad stuff. And um, the classic case of dana goes to the corner. One of the, anyway, one of the paradigmatic cases of it is kanyadana, that is to say, the gift of a virgin daughter, when, in which a man gives his daughter in marriage to a groom. And the whole North Indian uh, ideology of hypergamy and uh, affinity rests on the idea that the daughter is given up, and that the um, the wife givers must not receive even so much as a glass of water in the house of the wife takers. Okay. So there's a kind of flow of prestations and of the daughter, and nothing is taken in return. Rahaja's ethnography showed that Weiser had been somewhat naive to assume that everybody was alternately master and servant. In fact, the dominant caste in Rahaja's case is proud that it stands at the centre and its mem- members are always givers and not receivers of dan. And one consequence of this is that there are different types of person, although some people, of course, will find themselves on both sides of the, of the, of the boundary, sometimes being givers and sometimes receivers. Rahij's work therefore advanced an alternative king-centred vision of the caste system that displaced Brahmins and purity to, to being a kind of relatively peripheral concern, important to Brahmins perhaps, but not to most people. If correct, of course, Rahij's vision constituted a stake through the heart of Dumont's interpretation. It took the interpretation back to pre-Dumontian days, the views of Hokart, who had done fieldwork in Sri Lanka, and which saw the caste system as a sacrificial division of labour focused on the king. And Declan Quigley has also written eloquently about this. Rahaja's work, along with his own fieldwork on the funeral priest of Benares, also provided the impetus for Johnny Parry in his influential analysis of gift exchange. And this, where he showed that South Asian ideas about gifts, or at least that category, which is religiously marked as dana, broke apart the analysis put forward by Marcel Moos in his famous book, the gift, far from entailing an obligation to return, the whole point is that there is an obligation not to return. Okay. Otherwise, the gift will be ineffective. Uh, I got a footnote here that also uh, Rahej's work was also critiqued by Chris Gregory from a kind of subalternist perspective, but I haven't got time to go into that. At least not here. Um, so, having built up this picture, this slightly complex picture, contested picture, but nonetheless a, a kind of broad picture, I now have to kind of rush through some of the ways in which this monolithic picture has been um, uh, kind of decentered, if you like, by adding uh, perspectives from below. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, this is bound, I'm bound to leave somebody out or some aspect out that I ought to have considered. So and anyway, I look forward to your judgment on that. Um, so the first way, of course, and I've already hinted at this, the, the Dumontian picture was complexified through recognising that there were other sources of value, not just the Brahman. Srinivas had already pointed out that Kshatriyization was as common as Sanskritization. And to this, Richard Burkhart added and demonstrated with historical evidence from portraits and inscriptions and historical accounts that there are, were, in fact, three competing models of hierarchy focused on Brahmins, kings and ascetics, respectively. In other words, ascetics were not just outside society altogether, as Dumont argued, but actually provided a value hierarchy that operated within it. And then, in response to that, uh, Tien Madan and uh, uh, other, uh, oh, what some, some uh, he saw as a kind of overemphasis on renunciation in the interpretation of Hinduism, Tien Madan emphasized the value of householderhood, which was certainly true. The grihasta, or householder, is certainly a key central figure in, in Hinduism. 
Another aspect that Dumont paid relatively little attention to was the, I mean, which is surprising given how important they are to his interpretation, is that it is untouchables or Dalits as they're now called, or more politically correct, correctly. Earlier writers, Goff and others, um, uh, saw them as representing uh, a kind of counterculture to the dominant castes. In response, Michael Moffat wrote a powerful and Dumontian ethnography that showed how untouchables replicated wherever they were excluded from high caste activities. And he concluded, those people who are in egalitarian terms amongst the most oppressed members of Indian society are also among the truest believers in the system that so oppresses them. Subsequent authors, de Liège, Moss and others, have criticised the simple blanket nature of Moffat's judgment. And it certainly there are countercurrents, there are some... I think we have to distinguish different types of Dalit. As always, it's more complicated than that. Um, but certainly there's more to be said there. Okay, now I've got a note which says, say something about tribes. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to skip over that and leave that for the discussion. Um, but certainly the tribal aspect, you know, tribes have to be, I think, somehow included in the story as a major variant on, of, of the kind of um, caste Hindu uh, version of Hinduism. And certainly the household, we've mentioned the household, the household is made up of both male and female members, and it would be absolutely wrong not to, to stress the important contribution that has been made to understanding this. So a major contribution here came from Lynn Bennett, who, through a focus on women's lives and religious practices, provided a rich picture of village Hinduism. And one of her key findings, well, many, but one of her key findings was that different forms of the Hindu goddess appeal to men and to women. They have different constituencies. The fierce form, Durga, is primarily worshipped by men, both in the context of symbolising the patrilineage and in seeking power to defeat their enemies. So it's kind of interesting, every Nepali army camp, every Nepali police station has a little shrine to Durga so they can worship her for power to beat up the bad guys. Um, the chaste, self-sacrificing form of the goddess Parvati is primarily worshipped by women and symbolises the problems that women face on leaving the natal home and adjusting to life in their husband's households. Bennett also dissected the tensions between what she called the competing ideologies of the patrifocal family and the filiofocal worship of virginal girls. So it's that, that, that filiofocal ideology that gives rise to the uh, kanyadan, or gift of a virgin, that I've already mentioned. Another brilliant ethnography which dissects the interconnections of purity, gender, caste, and class, and goes even further than Bennett because it puts class and caste in the centre, is Karin Kapadia's uh, Shiva and her sisters. She is very clear, contrary to, contra, counter to Moffat, that low caste do not share high caste ideas about divinity or purity, and some of her most interesting material has to do with spirit possession. Um, and again, there's a lot more to be said about spirit possession um, uh, and how that is, I think, part of uh, what is shared, sort of ideas, whether pro or against. Um, uh, 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 um, but it's, it's key anyway, but I haven't written that bit, so again, we're going to skip that. <laughs> All right, next section is called Modernising uh, Hinduism. Um, so as we've seen, some scholars assert that Hinduism was conjured into existence in the colonial period. So it's certainly true that the word, the word Hinduism dates from the colonial period. The word, only the first uses come back to the 1810s or 1820s. It probably really only went into general usage uh, after Monia Williams published his book Hinduism in 1877. But uh, anyway, the invention, the invention of X, the invention of Y in the colonial period has been much overworked, that trope. What is certainly true, though, is that the confrontation with missionaries in the colonial period did provoke <coughs> reformers to create new forms of Hinduism that were more in accordance with Western assumptions about what a religion should look like. Brecker has very uh, nicely told this story in terms of three uh, reformers. Vivekananda for Hinduism, Anagarika Dharmapala, for Buddhism, and Birshan Gandhi, who was a representative of the Jain teacher, Atmaramji. Uh, of course, Atmaramji wasn't able to, because he was such a strict Jain ascetic, was not able to cross the water. But the, th other, the three of them went to Chicago, to the World Parliament of Religions in 1893, and that was a kind of absolutely key moment in generating um, the modern images. 
of these religions, and I think D.T. Suzuki was also there from Japan, and Seiji was a kind of this is when kind of the modern study of world religions got um, crystallized, and the image, the Western image of what these religions consisted of, was heavily influenced by these gentlemen. But vice versa, they took back um, all, all kinds of things from the West. So new forms of Hinduism emerged, which emphasized monotheism, um, uh, female empowerment, uh, equality of all believers, and so on, such as the Arya Samaj of Dayanand and Saraswati, and similar movements like the Brahma Samaj, mainly focused in Bengal. And the, of course, the, uh, from the 1870s onwards, there were these uh, decennial censuses uh, organized by the British, and there, in those, you had to identify as Hindu, Muslim, Jain, Christian, etc. And one and only one answer allowed. And this generated... Of course, there were also kinds of processes of caste formation, which was provoked by this uh, process, but uh, above all, a process of identification as belonging to a particular religion. All of that process happened much later in Nepal, almost 80 years later in Nepal, in the, that, in the census, taking census only started in Nepal in the, eight, in the 1950s, and at that point people had to be taught what is your religion? Because most people didn't have any answer to that. They weren't used, they were, they were very used to answering the question, what is your caste? They could say that, but what is your dharma? And the idea that you could only have one dharma, the natural response to what is your dharma before you've been taught this modern principle of, of, of modern states. Um, is to say, oh, my, my dharma is my cool dharma, my family is my inherited family dharma. But that's not the answer they were, you weren't, that wasn't the answer they were looking for. They were looking for either Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or something else, but only one answer allowed. So once people start getting put into this singular boxes, then you get the whole kind of process of generation of Hindu and Muslim identities. It's not true, of course, to say this was totally invented by the um, colonial period in India, but it certainly gave it a big big impetus. And then, of course, it made the whole issue of conversion became much more toxic because it started to come with the ideas of democracy. Um, and now also, I also have a section on uh, diaspora, but I'm considering merging that into the section on modernizing Hinduism. The key point about um, Hinduism in, in diaspora, I suppose, is that it's had to adapt to the context uh, where it's found itself. Um, there is, of course, the fascinating issue of the Hinduization of Southeast Asia, um, which I'm not going to go into now. And then there's the kind of 19th century and after diasporas. We've got at least three waves of diaspora. Um, 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 well, the first would be the kind of the, that early one to Southeast but this, then the next would be the British Empire late 19th century diaspora we're taking indentured labor uh, all to the Pacific and to Guyana, Trinidad, Suriname etc and to East Africa um, then you've got the wave of diaspora from the 60s um, you know Idi Amin kicking uh, Asians out of Uganda and most of them coming here before then continuing on in many cases to Canada, Australia and so on and then of course you've got the more recent waves but as I say the key point is that the definition of what Hinduism is has to fit into what the usually state-given definition of religion in a particular place. And perhaps one of the most interesting, because of the most extreme example, and also lesser known, um, is um, the case of Indonesia, where you're allowed to have a religion providing it's monotheistic, providing it's got one scripture, and so on. So Hinduists, Hindu activists in Indonesia have reworked Hinduism in such a way that it believes in one god and one scripture, and so on. All right, now I come to my conclusion. So, Fuller tells us in his um, standard work on um, the anthropology of Hinduism that the... Um, you know, in the case of Islam, because... because most people think of Islam as one, the role of the anthropologist is to complexify that and persuade people, actually, you're wrong. You know, Muslims do very different things in different places and you can, there are many ways of being a good Muslim. With Hinduism, it's the other way around. Hinduism, everybody expects it to be utterly diverse. Therefore, the anthropologist's job is to show that there is kind of unity behind the diversity. 
So what Fuller is getting at is that the anthropologist's task is always to undermine idée reçue, to argue that the world is not as simple as that, okay? Which, of course, is why we're so bad at getting grants, because we can't... You know, who wants to be, pay, pay us a load of money to be told, you know, well, actually it's not as simple as that? Um, where, so where the stereotype assumes that all Islam is the same, the anthropologist's task is to show that there are radical differences within the supposed homogeneity of Muslim practice. Where the stereotype or expectation is that Hinduism is radically diverse, the anthropologist should argue, on the contrary, that despite appearances, there's some kind of underlying unity. In other words, the anthropologist's task, or perhaps I should say the social anthropologist's task, is to attack simplistic and overly reductionist explanations wherever they find them. And, but it's not just reductionism in general which is targeted by anthropologists. Anthropologists try to develop an of when the field is not self-evidently theirs. We don't normally speak of the anthropology of kinship, the anthropology of segmentary lineages, or the anthropology of ethnicity, because those topics are considered to be centrally anthropological already. They're ours, even if others don't recognise that fact or ignore our contributions. But we do speak of the anthropology of markets, the anthropology of violence, the anthropology of democracy, the anthropology of museums, the anthropology of emotions, of the body, of biomedicine, of religion. And the reason is that there are others out there who are supposed to be the experts on these areas, and we wish to indicate that an anthropological approach offers offers something different. That, as I've said elsewhere, anthropology is the Heineken discipline, which can reach the parts that other disciplines cannot reach. But it's not just that anthropology can supply a bottom-up perspective and give voice to those who are not usually taken into account, although that's certainly an important thing to do. There's something comical about Western observers declaring that these peasants who think they're Buddhists, they're not, not Buddhists. You know, I know better than they do what their religion is about. Nor is it just that anthropology can access the informal and the everyday beyond the categories of the state and of positivist social science. Anthropologists usually want to go further and argue that they are uniquely placed to bracket and interrogate the a priori categories that frame the investigation. And some anthropologists want to argue that other anthropologists have been blinded by their own presuppositions inherited from secular social science and Western common sense. Dumont famously argued that our allergy to hierarchy made it very difficult to grasp South Asian realities. Robbins and Connell have argued the same for the anthropology of Christianity, that its very nearness to anthropologists' cultural baggage makes it the last of the great world religions to be treated anthropologically. Although I must say I've always felt this is terribly unfair to authors such as William Christian and J.D.Y. Peel, who've produced classic anthropology of Christianity uh, before the so-called new anthropology of Christianity people were out of primary school. I, too, have argued that Protestant presuppositions about what a religion is supposed to be has distorted the study of Asian religious realities. The presupposition that the three types of religion that I mentioned earlier must be provided by a single system has led to puzzlement over what Buddhists and Hindus actually do, which is structured in a hierarchical way. So let me end by offering Axel Mikhail's definition of Hinduism. And as you can see, it's quite a complicated one. So he's kind of hedging his bets here. Um, on the one hand, it's a combination of different religions and that fulfill the following five different criteria. But on the other hand, item number five, there is a single identificatory habitus. Okay? And, and um, the three religions that he referring to are Brahmanic, Sanskritic, Hinduism, folk or caste religion, and founded religion. And the four forms of religiosity are ritualism, spiritualism, devotionalism, and heroism. But I mean, I think, you know, one could argue that these are, uh, could be, can be combined. So he's adopting a kind of complex and nuanced approach that, combine, that somehow it combines and acknowledges the rejectionism of Hinduism is not a religion, but at the same time tries to synthesize and bring it all together. In Indian philosophical terms, his position might have been labelled Dvaita Dvaita, so dualism in non-dualism. And his postulation of this thing called the identificatory habitus, what is that? That is this kind of um, habit of thought of Hindus, of always identifying how one thing can stand for another, if you like, a kind of metonymic thinking. And it's certainly a big step forward from positing something called the Hindu mind. And I like... 
I like the idea that it refers to a tendency that can be shared with those people who are actually not formally part of Brahmanical Hinduism. So, um, for example, in um, Nepal these days, in the far east of the country, and they have followers in this country as well, there's a group of people who follow a guru um, now dead called Falgananda, and they deny that they are Hindus. And yet, I think it will be quite fair to say that they do have, they do share the Hindu or Indic identificatory habitus. There's a lot of local political reasons why they deny that they're Hindus, which we don't need to go into. But if we are to posit such a habitus, um, then I think we need to go beyond what Mikhail says, and we need to include other things in it, not just this classificatory tendency to you know, identify things with each other, I think we also need to include the tendency to separate okay, and to exclude under certain contexts. And also we need to include the hierarchical uh, mode of thought as analysed so brilliantly by Dumont, so which enables one to have both inclusion and exclusion as part of a single thought world uh, without apparent contradiction. Okay, so my main point, finally, is that once we break down the category of religion, once we allow that different religions may have different strategies in terms of dealing with uh, the different ways of dealing with elements that are more peripheral than others, different strategies for uh, dealing with everyday life, different strategies for encompassing um, uh, uh, vernacular practices, Hinduism may not be quite so difficult as all that to fit into the overall picture. In other words, the problem is more with our category of religion than it is with the category of Hinduism. And I think, well, within that overall over thing we call Hinduism, uh, in spite of the fact that the name has changed over the centuries, um, we can encompass these kind of diff- many different attitudes towards scriptures, different attitudes towards sects, and, and different attitudes towards possession, which is something that I want to go into in a bit more detail in the final version of this. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.